what underlies the numerical ability of uh, ants or birds or fish also underpins our own numerical ability. My guess is that no Greek, no ancient Roman was a prodigious calculator because their notation was inappropriate for calculation. Self-recognition is difficult. When you can't do what everybody else in the class can do, you think of yourself as being stupid. And I've had lots of adults come to me late in life, even in their 80s, and say, at last I understand why I couldn't learn uh, arithmetic. It's not because I was stupid. This is Brain Inspired. Hey, it's Paul. My guest today is Brian Butterworth. Brian is Emeritus Professor of Cognitive Neuropsychology at University College London. He's written previous books like The Mathematical Brain and Dyscalculia, and his newest book, Can Fish Count? What Animals Reveal About Our Uniquely Mathematical Minds, which is the main subject of our conversation today. The book, like the subtitle suggests, explores the counting and numerical abilities of many species, why it's important for organisms to count, how evolution has shaped what's important to count for individual species, the experiments to test counting abilities, how our brains might implement our numerical abilities, and other related topics. Today we discuss dyscalculia for a while, and its relation to dyslexia, something Brian knows a lot about. Then we wander through a few of the topics I just mentioned, using examples like fish, lions, birds, and bees, and a handful of others, although the book has many more examples than we get to. So I link to the book in the show notes at braininspired.co slash podcast slash 137. If you like the topics discussed in general on this podcast, and want to learn more about the intersection of neuroscience and AI, you may be interested in my free video series, Open Questions in AI and Neuroscience. In it, you'll learn about some key unanswered questions in both fields and the emerging field of neuroAI, which can help move those fields forward. Go to braininspired.co slash open to get those videos. All right, here's my discussion with Brian Butterworth. So Brian, the book is called can fish count. But uh, really, it's about uh, the counting and numerical abilities of many species. It's a a broad survey of which animals and organisms can uh, count, and how we tell how they can count, whether they can count. And of course, um, it's about, you know, the, the mechanisms of counting and so on. First of all, why are you interested in counting? And why fish in particular? Well, like much of science, it's down to luck. So it was by luck I I became a neuropsychologist. I was just a, a regular psycholinguist. Then I got called in to do some analysis of aphasic patients. And uh, so I actually became quite well known for doing research on aphasia. Then I, um, I had a, a pipeline uh, to a university in Italy, uh, University of uh, Padua, uh, and uh, under the European community, as it was then, 
I would send them students and they would send me students. And one of the students who came to work with me for her PhD want, uh, initially wanted to work on aphasia because that's what I did. And when she got to London, she said, I don't want to work on aphasia. Um, I want to work on something that nobody else works on or very few people work on. And so I, I looked into my past and discovered I was interested in the foundations of mathematics. And I thought, well, why don't we uh, look at uh, mathematical abilities? And so we did a, a series of, of individual patient studies who had selective deficits initially of uh, their mathematical abilities, where previously they'd been okay at maths. And we also did a few patients who had um, preserved mathematical abilities when other cognitive abilities like memory and language were all shot to pieces. And what we discovered, or perhaps I should say rediscovered, was that there was a particular part of the brain, in the left parietal lobe, which, if damaged, um, led to difficulties with mathematics, and if intact, led to preserved mathematics, even though other parts of the brain might affect language and memory and so on. And then I started to ask why this part of the brain, and that's really uh, the beginning of the story about how I got to fish. Ah, okay. So, so you're talking about dyscalculia. Dyscalculia? Yes, <laughs> dyscalculia, yeah. Um, that, that, uh, that, that came a little bit later. Um, so, um, one of the, one of the themes in neuropsychology uh, back in the uh, 90s was whether dissociations that you found in patients could be found developmentally. So uh, a range of different disabilities in reading or language had been identified in neurological patients. And the question is, could some kind of developmental disorder lead to a similar kind of pattern? So I wondered if this was the case with... Uh, uh, numerical abilities. Um, if, for example, uh, children have uh, mm. something anomalous about their left parietal lobe, would this lead to them having problems with, uh, at least with uh, numerical tasks? And that's why I started thinking about uh, um, developmental dyscalculia. And I think we were the first, actually, um, to discover that. Uh, children, in this case they were nine, nine years old, um, who were really bad at very, very simple tasks like, say, how many dots there are in a display where there are only one to ten dots. Um, these were the kids who, were, who had real trouble doing arithmetic. And uh, since that original study, which I did with um, a visiting, a, a brilliant visiting scientist from Austria called Karen Landau, and an equally brilliant student of mine called Anna Bevan. Um, um, that was really the start of, uh, I would say, modern uh, investigations into developmental dyscalculia. We showed that if you're bad at enumerating dots, then you're going to have trouble learning arithmetic. And so we began to think that maybe there's some kind of innate system mm. for um, doing very simple number tasks for extracting numerical information from the environment and uh, that if, if like other inherited capacities 
something goes wrong in the course of inheritance, then um, you know you could end up having trouble with things that other people find perfectly easy. You make the point. I want to ask about the relation to language in a moment, but you make the point that dyslexia is widely recognized and treated. And in fact, I don't know if it was just underdiagnosed when I was younger, but it seems like half of the children uh, that my my kids go to school with have been diagnosed with dyslexia and are getting treatment for that. But um, but you have made the point that. Um, dyscalculia is under-recognized and under-treated. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. There was uh, a major UK government report published in 2008 which compared the effects on life chances mm. of, of dyscalculia and dyslexia. And what they found was that in terms both of lifetime earnings and in terms of uh, educational opportunities, having dyscalculia was more of a handicap than dyslexia. Mm -hmm. uh, now, why dyslexia should be better recognized than dyscalculia is a deep historical problem. Um, I think one of the reasons is because it seems to be okay to say to a friend or a teacher, well, uh, <laughs> or a parent, you know, I I'm just not very good at maths. But you can't really say, well, you know, I'm not, very good at reading or I'm not very good at, you know, hearing language. Then, then you're dumb, the, right? The, yeah, that, that's the cause of most, most, most dyslexias. Um, and, uh, and, and the other thing, that there was a, a wonderful English actress called Susan Hampshire who many years ago um, collected famous people who were dyslexic. She herself, as an actress, was dyslexic and found it very, very hard oh, yeah. to uh, learn her lines. Um, and she wondered if there were other people who were somehow made it in, the, in their own world uh, who were also dyslexic. So, for example, racing driver Jackie Stewart was one of those who was um, who came out, if you will, as dyslexic. Uh, we had a deputy prime minister, Michael Heseltine, who nearly became prime minister. Unfortunately, he didn't. Um, and he admitted to being dyslexic. Uh, and there are many of them. So in our current parliament, there are quite a few people who admit to being dyslexic, but none so far who admit to being <laughs> dyscalculic. Well, uh, but I've, yeah. I've, I've, put, I've put out, I've put out a, a request. Any of, any of you famous people who are dyscalculic or think you might be dyscalculic, please come forward and we'll test you. Think you might be is the key there. <laughs> yeah, because I'm curious... When people are dyslexic and or dyscalculic, uh, how, how easy it is to self-recognize that? Self-recognition is difficult, uh, as it was for dyslexia originally. When you can't right. do what everybody else in the class can do, you think of yourself as being stupid. And I've had lots of adults come to me late in life, even in their 80s, and say, at last I understand why I couldn't oh learn uh, arithmetic. It's not because I was stupid. I thought, I, you know, all this time I thought I was just stupid because I couldn't do arithmetic. And, uh, and now I know that, you know, it could be something quite specific, um, nothing to do with stupidity at all. I mean, it's a bit like colorblindness, isn't it, uh, Professor Butterworth? Mm. You know, some people are colorblind, some people aren't. 
And it's nothing to do with their intelligence. It's just that something's gone wrong with the inheritance. So, um, so I feel that, that being able to identify it uh, relieves people of the burden of thinking they're, they're just stupid. Yeah. This is a total aside, but I, I was thinking the... Um, so just going back to dyslexia again, I, I don't know that there's a, as much of a stigma now to dyslexia. And in fact, it seems like at least a portion of the population, like some mental um, phenomena, uh, dyslexia is almost kind of like celebrated as something special now. Uh, I, I, do you have that sense or am I misreading society in that regard? No, that, that's absolutely right. I mean, I, I've even got a book somewhere um, called The Gift of Dyslexia. Right, okay. <laughs> um, which says, well, dyslexics just think differently and, and, and this can be very, very creative. Um, I don't know there have been any proper studies, peer-reviewed studies, of uh, whether dyslexics are more creative than, than non-dyslexics. So, you know, I've... Um, I'm agnostic about that. Um, but of course, dyslexia is a serious problem. And yeah. unless, unless you, you get the right sort of help early on, you're never going to be able to read efficiently. And, uh, if you do get the right help early on, uh, then you can learn to read efficiently. You won't necessarily read in the same way as non-dyslexics. Um, but, you know, you can, you can get by. In fact, the first, dyslexic that we ever tested, uh, a young woman who was in my uh, seminar group at University College London, which, by the way, is an extremely hard university to get into. You have to be really good to get into it. And so all the students there are really good. And, you know, she, she was reading out her essay one day in the seminar group. And every time, I think it was an essay on neurotransmitters. So these are, are words that you, you come across in text, but you don't often hear spoken. Mm. And also by authors that um, you see in text, but don't hear spoken. So she read out a perfectly good essay on neurotransmitters. And every time she came to the name of a neurotransmitter or an author she wanted to cite, she turned to the student next to her and said, um, how do you say that? And he would say, well, whatever it was, oh. GABA, for example, something really mm -hmm. simple. And next time she came across G-A-B-A, she would say GABA. So each word that she knew how to pronounce, she had to learn as a separate item. Interesting. So to get to, to get to the psychology course at University College, she had to do a lot of very, very hard work. So she had to learn all those words separately. And uh, we tested her formally after, after this. Oh, this is interesting. And so we gave a really simple letter strings that she'd never seen before and asked her to pronounce them, and she couldn't. Hmm. Uh, but once we told her how to pronounce them, she was okay. And that was a particular, rather specialized case of dyslexia. I mean, there are cases like that, and there are cases which are, are rather different from that. Um, but she formed a pattern, and um, you know, we, we thought that this was actually worth letting the world know about me. We wrote some papers about it. And curiously, we found a Japanese boy. Uh, well, we didn't find him. His father found us. And this Japanese boy was exactly like this, this uh, student of mine 
in that he was really, really bad at reading hmm. English. Mm -hmm. He could only pronounce words whose pronunciation he already knew. Um, but his Japanese reading was very superior. Hmm. So um, we thought this was a very interesting uh, observation, and we actually went to Japan, tested all his classmates, tested him again, tested his father, tested his mother, tested his siblings. It turns out that his classmate, I mean, if you, if you spoke to him, you wouldn't know that he wasn't a fluent English speaker. He was a fluent English speaker. Uh, was as good as me, if not better. Um, but his classmates, of course, would, you know, just learn English at school. Um, so they weren't very good. But their reading of English was better than his. His uh, siblings uh, were normal English readers. His father, who was a famous journalist, well, I won't say who. Why can't you say who? Um, <laughs> I, well, I, I, I don't want to say who. Okay. Right? okay. Um, and um, a famous English journalist who worked for a, a famous English publication, then for other things. Uh, he, uh, he was an excellent, an excellent reader, but he didn't read normally. And we think he was dys dyslexic as well. And when we asked him, he said, yeah, well, I had trouble reading at school. So I said, well, <laughs> why did you become a journalist in that case? <laughs> and he said, well, I really wanted to be a journalist. So, you know, he put the R's in and became a actually a very famous journalist. So dyslexia, we, we, we've worked on dyslexia. We, we, we know quite a bit about it. But dyscalculia is different because there are varieties of dyslexia, but there's only really one type of developmental uh, dyscalculia. Is, is, does that have to do with the um, accumulate, like the kind of fundamental simple accumulator mechanism that underlies our counting and then therefore numerical ability? That's the claim of the book, yes. And um, so we're the only species that really, that has proper language. I think it's fair to say that. I mean, lots of other, of course, not all creatures communicate to some extent, but they don't have language in the sense that we have language. And therefore, there isn't really an animal model of language. Whereas, as I point out in the book, there are lots of creatures, maybe all creatures, have some degree of numerical ability. And so there are animal models for numerical ability. And the claim in the book is that what underlies the numerical ability of uh, ants or birds or fish also underpins our own numerical ability. Now, of course, we have lots of other things that help us, like we have counting words and mm -hmm. we have uh, symbols uh, and we have education, which um, fish, even though they, they live in schools, uh, don't actually have any education. So when I, um, I guess let's talk a little bit about um, the relation between language and uh, counting. I've had this, I don't know if this is a common thing. You, you've, you can tell me. Uh, I will often be walking and then notice um, around some, you know, sometimes it's in the 30s, sometimes it's in the 20s, that I've subconsciously been counting my steps. It happens a, a lot, especially on stairs for some reason. Um, yeah. But those are counting words. Uh, so that's my... Uh, language ability on top of some counting ability. 
So what's going on there? And uh, but but you you've already uh, alluded to the fact that our counting ability, that very basic mechanism, is distinct from many, if not all, of our other higher cognitive functions, like language. Although in the case I just yes. described, that's an interaction between language and counting. Yes. Well, one of the things that uh, modern humans learn uh, in the course of growing up are counting words. Now, it's not clear when humans started to have counting words. Now, we know that you know, 30,000 years ago, humans counted because we've got marks on bones and stones and cave walls, which are, in my view, correctly interpreted as counting. Now, whether they actually had counting words like one, two, three to go with those uh, marks is is not certain. Now, there is a, a school of thought, uh, some modeling that's been done, uh, particularly by Mark Pagel and his colleagues at Reading University, uh, which suggests that you can actually get a sense of when humans started to use counting words. So if you've got a, a, you can see how words change over time, over historical time, oh, because yeah. they're written down. So you've got a, a record and a timestamp for quite a lot of words. And you can tell how quickly or how slowly uh, words change. And one of the things that uh, Pagel and his colleagues discovered is that in three of the largest language families, Austronesian, um, African languages, and Indo-European languages, counted words are among the slowest changing. And so if you kind of uh, retrodict or predict back from the oldest examples you've got, you can say, well, you know, maybe even 30,000 years ago, Hmm. Um, humans had counting words. I mean, we don't know for certain, of course, but that that's plausible. Now, but even before then, you know, with Neanderthals, uh, they also probably counted, looking at the kind of artifacts they made and the marks that they made on cave walls and, and bone. They probably counted as well. And, um, well, they almost certainly did, according to me. Um, but whether they had counting words to do it, it's not clear because we don't really know whether they had something like modern language uh, mm -hmm. as, as such. Uh, now, why you should count your steps? Um, the question I would then be tempted to ask is, when you were with your parents, did they count steps with you? I know that with my kids, you know, we would walk along the road, we'd swing them along between, you know, the mother and the father yep. go, you know, one, two, three up, and we'd count the steps up the, up the, up the stairs. Um, so they got quite a lot of experience of counting words when they were very young. And you know, that maybe stick in the, in, in the mind. So later on, it gets, uh, if you like, uh, uh, remembered or, or reconstructed. And it, it's, Commonly, it's commonly assumed, and there's a lot of evidence for this, though no, I think, proper research, that when you do, uh, if you're multilingual, are you multilingual? No, I'm not fluent in any other languages. Okay. Um, so if, if, for example, you're brought up, let's say, just bilingual, say English and French, then if you were taught counting in English, you would count in English preferentially your whole life. Um, we did a bit of work in Spain with um, 
looking at uh, kids brought up speaking in, in Catalonia, kids speaking Spanish and speaking Catalan. And some of them went to Catalan schools, some of them went to Spanish schools, and on the whole, the ones who went to Catalan schools counted in Catalan, those mm. in Spanish schools counted Spanish in Spanish. And we know lots of very, very educated um, Europeans, um, uh, say, brought up in, in Italy, speak perfect English. They count in Italian. Um, and uh, something that, you know, if you, you get it into children's brains early enough, it kind of stays there. What well, seems like such a useless thing, such a useless yeah. thing. Every time I notice that I'm, you know, in the 30s or something, I think, now I think, because having read your book, I think I'm not an ant. So I don't need to count my steps. So what you know? What a waste of brain energy, essentially. Yes. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure there's no point to it. Um, but you never know. I mean, you might be. You might like the ants be making an estimate of how far you've gone by the number of steps you've counted, which is what at least one species of ant, ant does. Um, yeah. Um, so blame blame my parents is what you're saying. Well, <laughs> yeah, for so many, for so many things, we right. should blame our parents. Right. Um, but uh, I mean, the other thing is that we, we've, uh, I think I reported briefly about this in the book. We've actually done studies, and other people have as well, that you can, you count unconsciously uh, without words. Mm-hmm. Um, so you you can present an array of uh, dots, and you mask them very quickly after their presentation. So if you are if you ask the subject. Uh, how many dots did you see? They, they can't answer because it hasn't kind of registered in their consciousness. But nevertheless, we know that it has an effect on something that they do next. So if you, if they see four dots and then, uh, they can't report how many there are. And then you ask them to, uh, count some dots that they can see. Then if they've, um, if, for example, the number of dots is the same in their, uh, in their unconscious perception, then they'll be quicker. Um, and uh, it, uh, it was we had some kind of strange results there, but lots of people have found that uh, you, you you can count unconsciously, uh, and you can't, of course, ask people uh, what, how many things you saw because they're unconscious. But you can see the effect of having made that uh, uh, numerical assessment on on later behaviour. So you don't have to do it with words. You can do it in other ways. Sticking with words and, and language, um, just for another minute, I took a class that was uh, interesting about the origins of writing, um, not the origins of language per se, but um, the professor focused a lot on early cuneiform and marks on clay tablets back in the Frill Crescent and how the need to keep track of how many sheep you get and how many I get and things like that. And those marks that you were talking about on the clay tablets, uh, probably, I don't know what the current uh, hypothesis is, but her idea was that that sort of thing led to written language. And of course, that's not spoken language. But so thinking about the counting abilities of us and uh, what seems to be just across all species so far that have been tested, it seems, um, would you, and however, we were just alluding to the fact that language seems to be separate from this counting mechanism. So in your, in your thoughts, uh, counting and numerical ability must have preceded language perhaps, but 
Do you think that it had anything to do with development of language in the human species? Well, according to Chomsky and his followers, our ability to count is really consequential upon our ability right. to do syntax, linguistic syntax. And the reason for this is because we can count as high as we like, and at least we can with words. And so, okay, um, if you're going to count as high as you like without words, it's going to be a bit difficult. Yeah. Um, so he thinks that the recursive mechanism that you need for syntax uh, underpins our ability to count. Well, it certainly uh, um, is related to our ability to count large numbers precisely. That's true. But, you know, ants don't have language, at least these particular desert ants don't have language. I mean, they won't claim that they do. But yet they can do some quite good, I would say, recursive counting um, uh, fish too. So I don't think he's right about that. But obviously, uh, you know, you, you can't count... Uh, you know, let's say 213 precisely, unless you've got the linguistic means to do it. I mean, you might make an, an estimate of, you know, around 200, a bit more than 200, a bit less than 250, even without the language, but you can't get 213, I would say, without the language. Um, so, you know, language, I'm not saying language isn't important. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, um, I think there's, the mathematician A. N. Whitehead said, you know, um, uh, a good notation uh, makes life a whole lot easier. And we do have, or we now have, a good notation mm. for numbers. And actually, one of the things that um, uh, I've just been writing about, um, uh, and I, I mentioned it briefly in the book, is that if you look at people who are exceptional calculators, I mean, not like me, but, you know, really, really good, like savants, yeah. Well, like savants, but they're not idiot savants. They're, mm -hmm. I mean, they're you know professional mathematicians. Some mm -hmm. of them, um, and and or engineers. You know, anybody who's really been very good. Uh, I see. And some of them have even you know been in, been formally tested and been in brain scanners and so on. Um, I mean, w one of the things that, uh, that that is is clear from from uh, these people is that they've got an enormous a memory store of facts that uh, that they've learned for whatever reason uh, facts about numbers you know hundreds of digits of pi the square of every number between one and a hundred uh, you know these, these guys are, are really good and um yeah that that i mean they're absolutely not you know in the classic rain man type of uh savant uh I mean, a lot of them are just kids who've gone to abacus training after school in in India or Japan or China mm. or Taiwan, um, who just learned to do uh, arithmetical calculations really, really quickly. Now, I don't think they're using words, by the way. Um, I mean, the ones I've spoken to about this, the ones I've observed, they have this. Kind of, they have a a um, a, a calculating. They have the abacus in their head, so they're not doing words. They're just moving these imaginary uh, beads around in their head. So uh, that's uh, why some of them, you know, just who've been to abacus jukus, um, are really good. But the other thing I would say is that all the other prodigious calculators who haven't been to abacus school, 
they depend on our positional notation. And my guess is that no Greek, no ancient Roman was a prodigious calculator because hmm. their notation was inappropriate for calculation. Mm -hmm. And we know this, it was inappropriate because when people were writing Roman numerals back in the day, they, if they were doing calculations, they used a counting board uh, with uh, units and tens and hundreds on the counting board, and they put uh, beads on the, on on each of these um, columns to indicate uh, how many uh, uh, how many tens, how many units, how many hundreds there were. Um, so you needed a proper notation if you're going to be really good at this. Um, now there were other ways. I'm sorry, I've gone into this, but no, you please tempted. You yeah. tempted me down this path. <laughs> um, there were also finger counting methods, hmm. and some of them were really complicated, and you could do really complicated calculations on your fingers. And whether you were using uh, counting words, or, di or and this was before you had positional notation, uh, whether you used counting words as well, I don't know. It's not reported. Uh, but there are a lot of kind of medieval manuscripts, like from the Venerable Bede, about how you could use each uh, each part of your finger to represent a different number and so on and so on. The, the, the different segments of your fingers, of each different individual segments, finger, yeah. And, yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, and so you and you you work out ways of you know doing it huh. skillfully. Uh, now, don't ask me to do it because I can't. Uh, right, <laughs> I've never been taught. Uh, but some people could, anyway. But the, the, oh, just the final point about lang language and, mm -hmm. uh, and, and numbers is uh, this is, if you like, crude neuroanatomy, different parts of the brain. And uh, this wasn't discovered by us. It was discovered by um, a Swedish neurologist called Henschen, who did a case study, and he had a case series of over 100 patients, maybe maybe nearer 200 patients. And what he observed was you could have disturbed uh, numerical abilities if your parietal lobe was, dis was damaged, but preserved language, or you could have um, impaired language if your frontal lobe was, uh, what we now call Broca's area, was damaged, but your uh, parietal lobe was intact. So he was the first really to identify this, because it both areas are damaged and you, you have trouble with language and numbers. And of yeah. course, you, you, you often get that. And we we recapitulated some of those studies in a bit more detail and showed that, you know, he was basically right. Uh, a lot of what you were just talking about with different calculation abilities is higher mathematically than the fundamental counting mechanism. So I, I would... I wonder, you know, what, what the relation is between our higher mathematical abilities and this kind of tally uh, counter, the accumulator mechanism that you describe. And it might be worth just um, describing, you know, that fundamental mechanism. And, and just to throw one more question at you. So what you're talking about as important for counting is in our parietal cortex. Uh, but if, our, if, counting, if the counting ability is so fundamental and common across species... Many species don't have a cortex, for instance. So, um, and and I know that we don't know where in the brain it happens in many other organisms. Uh, but might there be like a, a more basal 
uh, brain mechanism that underlies counting, even in us, that gets elaborated in the parietal cortex? Sorry, so many questions all at once, but there you go. Oh, um, uh, absolutely excellent questions. What we know about um, counting mechanism in other animals is basically in in uh, primates like uh, monkeys, monkeys yep. particularly, and in birds. This is some brilliant work done by a, a German uh, neuroscientist called Andreas Nieder. Uh, he did basically the same experiments with uh, uh, m- uh, monkeys and uh, birds, crows. And uh, what he found in the... Um, in the crow's brain, which doesn't have a cortex, was that there were individual neurons in what's, what's called the pallium of the, of the crow's brain, um, which looked very much like the individual neurons in the monkey brain, except mm. that uh, in the monkey brain they're in the cortex, but in the crow's brain they're in the pallium. Now, we don't know anything about, at the moment, about the fish brain, Hmm. Um, okay. Wow. So, what is that a teaser? <laughs> That's a teaser. Right. So, come back next year. We may have an answer for that one. Is it zebrafish that you're working on, or the? Uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're yeah we're working on zebrafish. Okay. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, I'm gonna tell you what we're doing, but it's uh, it's it's uh, but we don't have the, we don't have the data yet. Um, Great. Uh, so uh, so yeah, I mean, this is a really good question, and when you've got you know really interesting counting abilities in, in ants and bees who don't even have a pallium, um, mm-hmm. then we're, we're, we're talking, you know, uh, deep mysteries. But then again, uh, the analogy here, at least for me, is timing mechanisms. Oh, yeah. So you can find timing mechanisms in, in all species, in, from fruit flies, where they're probably best described, right up to humans. So in humans, they've got timing mechanisms in cortical structures. Uh, of course, fruit flies don't have cortical structures, but they have that we, we share genes with them or paralogs of the same genes. And so somehow these genes build um, timing mechanisms, if you like, where they can. Now, look, this is getting way above my pay scale. So um, um, I'm not sure I can, I can say much more than this. Uh, but when it, when it comes to fish, uh, we're we're gonna we're looking at uh, we're gonna we're looking at brains of, of fish, and we're going doing some more experiments on the brains of fish. Uh, Are you doing like whole brain optogenetic imaging? Is that what's going on? Yeah, or? optogenetic yeah. Pro- exactly. Cool. Yeah, we're doing optogenetics with microscopes because uh, we have to use larval zebrafish, and um, because they're transparent and they do optogenetics. So when um, when bits of the brain are active, they light up in this in these particular uh, preparations, and so you can see them with a the microscope. Uh, and so um, we know that even larval zebrafish will orient towards more objects than fewer objects, and so you know we just want to know how these brains light up. But as I say, come back in a year and um, we may have you can, the answer. You're not going to give us any preliminary <laughs> results, even no, pre- no, preprint. We, we don't, we, okay. <laughs> we don't have a preference. No, okay. we haven't. No, no. I mean, this is this is a really difficult technical work. I mean, something that's you know, beyond my particular competence. And it's it's the team I work with who know mm-hmm. how to do this. And so far, we haven't got any data. I mean, we know how to do the. I think we know how to do the experiment. We just 
um, have got some other experiments that we have to do first, and and then we can get on to this really exciting one. You, you mentioned the uh, conservation of words for numbers in our language. So I, I just, it made me think, and then you're talking about timing mechanisms. I don't know if we want to come back to the relation between timing and counting since there's uh, overlap there, but but uh, I remember I had uh, Dean Buonamano on the podcast a long time ago, and he makes the point that the word uh, time is the most common noun in the English language. I can't speak to its conservation <laughs> as a word, but uh, but the actual word time, so uh, an interesting overlap there as well. But um, let's talk about fish a little bit more in a, in a moment, but, but I, I still want to know because uh, their counting ability is much more, let's say, fundamental or, or lower level. But because you were talking about calculations and our ability to um, manipulate numbers and perform higher mathematical calculations and operations, what is the relation between you know, that fundamental accumulator counting mechanism and our higher mathematical abilities? Well, uh, there's a basic arithmetic. So one of the things that... Uh, my 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 fish experimenter colleagues have done is they've uh, a- arranged a- a- an experiment in which the fish can only see one other fish at a time. So the fundamental or the basic paradigm is: Will the fish go to a larger shoal than a smaller shoal when it can only see um, each shoal one fish at a time? So it can see that say three fish over on the left and four fish over on the right, but it's swimming around in between these two shoals. So it's having to uh, actually count or add one to one to one and on this side and then one to one to one to one on the other side. Um, maybe it's doing what one over here, one over there. Uh, it's not clear exactly how the fish does it, but that's adding. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what about fish subtraction? Don't know about that. Um, there's been some work with bees that suggest that bees can subtract. Um, so that's with a, you know, and you just just step the accumulator down one in order to subtract. Mm-hmm. That that's that's not not so hard. So it, the basic accumulator mechanism is a bit like a tally counter. This is this is a little machine you can buy on Amazon for about you know a couple of dollars, <laughs> where you 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 press a key every time there's something that you want to count. So, for example, if you want to, the example I give in my book, which is rather biblical, is counting sheep but not goats. Uh, so for every sheep you see, you, 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 you press the key and the counter accumulates another sheep. And then at the end of your count, you look at the accumulation, it says 13 sheep. So uh, the difficult thing here uh, is... Not doing the counting, which is very simple, just uh, a lever press. It's actually deciding what object you're seeing mm. is a sheep, the selector, and not a goat. Um, the select what I've called the selector, and that's that's kind of expensive. And in in neural terms, you know, and and maybe in experiential terms, you have to learn what a sheep is, what a goat is. It doesn't doesn't it doesn't come naturally. Um, it may well be that the critical categories for bees, for example, uh, are landmarks. So the bee just identifies landmarks and, and counts them up. 
it might also count up petals on a flower to know which flowers are really going to be rich in pollen. Um, now, what we would do in those cases, counting landmarks and counting uh, petals, is we could say, do they have the same number or not? So we can uh, we can abstract away from the, um, the, the the landmarks and the petals and say, yeah, they've got the, you know there are four petals here. I've seen four landmarks. Does can the bee do that? Don't know. Uh, that's for bee researchers to uh, find out. I've I've tried to prompt bee researchers to look into this. Um, anyway, uh, we we can do it, no problem. But uh, other animals tend to only count things that are, are, are useful, relevant for them. Now, of course, you could say that when bees are counting landmarks, they're not all counting the same landmarks every time. They're counting, you know, uh, you know three yew trees here and three oak trees there they're not the same objects so there has to be a degree of abstraction mm. in landmark counting as well now we don't know the extent to which uh, bees can abstract away from landmarks we know that they do uh, because in the original experiment by Lars Chitka he, he had large yellow tents so it's always the same sort of landmark but they weren't always in the same place so the question he asked initially was, is the bee, when it goes from the hive to the food source, using a measure of distance which doesn't involve landmarks, or is it actually counting the landmarks in order to make an assessment of, of distance? So he could move the tents farther apart or bring them closer together and see whether the, the bee was using the number of landmarks to locate the the food source, or whether it was using total distance uh, from the hive to to the original food source. And what he found was that they were counting landmarks. Um, and uh, I mean, uh, he could have tried doing it with red land, red tents, or yeah, green tents, or tents in a different shape. But he didn't do that originally. So it'd be interesting to see the extent to which uh, bees can abstract from. Uh, the set that they're enumerating. Uh, well, yeah, I just had a, a bee expert on recently, Srini Srinivasan, and um, he ah, makes right, the point okay. also. Yeah, he that, did some uh, nice work on that. Yeah, yeah. Well, he a lot of his work is with like navigation and and flight control. But um, in a nice review he wrote about bee cognition, um, he talks about that that bees can discern zero as well, which is yes. an abstract, pretty abstract concept but it's fascinating to me that something that you talk about in your book also of course you know there's a question why do we need to count and that, so that that opens the whole evolutionary questions uh, but the idea that an organism can count some things but not other things is kind of hard to fathom given our what we would consider su superior abstraction ability that we can apply numerosity to anything no matter what uh, but it makes me wonder: What are we? Are there things that we can't count because they're not useful to us, or you know, do we have <laughs> such abstraction that we are free to count anything? You know, but it's an interesting fact. Uh, well, uh, yeah, I, uh, I think we can count anything. Um, not everybody can count everything. I mean, <laughs> right. some right. right, some things you need to be trained to count. Uh, so there was a you know, a famous nineteenth-century calculator who counted the. Uh, the the number of hairs on the tail of a horse. Now, 
he didn't need to do that. No. Uh, he just wanted to do it. Now, I, and I don't actually know how he did it, whether he did it by kind of pulling the, 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 uh, the tail apart so he could count each one. I don't know. Um, and there was another famous 19th century calculator. Uh, again, pe- people of very low educational ability, um, very little education at all, who, who counted the grains of, uh, corn that he gave to his chickens over the course of some large number of years. Um, I think it was 40 odd thousand. Um, wow. uh, so, you know, what you choose to count is really, I'll uh, say, up to you. Um, you can count your steps if, if you really want to. Also useless. Yep. <laughs> Which may or may not be useful. Right. Um, uh, but, um, yeah, uh, but nav- navigation's a very interesting issue, and I, I deal with it a bit in the book. And um, one of the, I was going to say one of the claims I make, but maybe that's not the right way to put it. One of the, um, what should I say, explanatory ideas that I try to use here is that uh, particularly for animals that migrate, and most of them do to a greater or lesser extent, they, you know, they go from their hive looking for food, Looking for a mate and then coming back. Um, so how do they how do they calculate distance? How do they calculate direction? How do they do what sailors would call dead reckoning, where mm-hmm. you actually calculate each step of your uh, of your uh, uh, path, and then figure out where you've got to, and then where you'd have to go next, where you'd have to go back to. Um, and the analogy that, that uh, I thought about was that maybe animals have something like Google Maps in their heads. So Google Maps is just numbers. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you ask Google Maps to say, as I did um, just before we came on air, um, what's the shortest way from my house to the bridge theater basically what the what google maps is doing it's doing a computation over numbers uh quite a complicated computation over quite a lot of numbers and so one possibility for navigation is that animals have something like google maps in their heads or which is just numbers uh, now, you know, on Google Maps, you can have additional information. You can ask it to tell you where restaurants are, where stations are. And maybe on a, a long journey like the Bartel Godwit, from, which flies from Alaska to New Zealand every year and then back again, uh, it needs to know where the restaurants are on en route. Actually, I don't know whether it does stop off for, for a snack. But anyway, if it did, uh, that's what it would need information to have and again you know restaurants or gas stations are just numbers in the google database but better than the google maps in some respects is that these migrating birds need to have a three-dimensional map because they're not flying flat they're flying up in the air they need to know about wind speeds wind directions where it's best to fly where Normally, you get you know a, a good following wind where you get a, a bad um, crosswind. They need to have a, a three-dimensional map that includes information about winds. Um, so 
maybe they don't have everything that you find in Google Maps, but they have something like, I would say something a bit like Google Maps, uh, with at least the relevant information coded there, somewhere in their brain. Now, you know, birds have small brains because they, they've got small aerodynamic heads. Hmm. But one of the things we've learned recently is that the, the number of neurons in the bird's brain um, could be greater than some of the, uh, the number of neurons in even some primates um, because the neurons are packed more closely together. Mm. Uh, they have to be because you've got these small aerodynamic heads. Um, so, um, well, and, and birds count just about as well as primates, or if not better in some cases, right? In, in some cases, they might do better. In fact, they've done the, uh, uh, Liz Brown and, and her team have done exactly, uh, did an experiment with, uh, with monkeys. And, uh, and another team took all her stimuli and did it with, with birds and got almost identical results. So uh, birds can, birds can be really pretty good at, uh, uh, numerical tasks. Maybe not all birds. Um, uh, but certainly, Corvids, uh, crows, and ravens, and so on. We've known for nearly a hundred years are very good at counting, and um, also parrots can be pretty good. Grey parrots, like the famous grey parrot uh, 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 Alex, um, mm-hmm. who could count and actually tell you in words how many he'd counted. Um, so they can, they can be pretty good, and, and parrots have been retested uh, again. So yeah, you know these are. So the term bird brain is um, could even be considered a compliment. Like dyslexia uh, now. These- <laughs> <laughs> you, you also talk about uh, Clever Hans. You tell that story in the book where, mm, yeah. um, you know, the, this was a horse that seemed to have great numerical ability, but was uh, cleverly using other cues that were, were mm. subtle. Um, and, and this is, you know, you also talk about how it's difficult to actually assess whether something is counting or whether it's using density or size or some other metric to accomplish tasks. So maybe maybe we should bring this back to fish again, since that's uh, your uh, the main focus and kind of what you end up with in the book. But well, yeah. So why do fish need to count? Why do they count? And then. Um, maybe we could talk about how how to tell whether they're actually counting or using some other uh, cues. Well, uh, small fish uh, like to live in shoals um, because being in a shoal reduces the risk of predation. Uh, so, if you're you know little freddy fish in a big shoal, um, when the wise mouth bass comes around, wants to eat some uh, your um, your friends, um, it might well miss you because it's already eaten your friends. If it's a small, if it's a very small shell, then it might eat your friends and you because uh, you can't you, uh, you can't escape from it. Um, so being able to choose the larger shell is important for for small fish. Uh, it also helps them uh, forage. Uh, particularly if you know if, if what they're looking for uh, are, are, are small particles in the water, so many eyes do a better job than just two eyes. The other question you ask is how do you know they're really responding to numerosity rather than uh, to other uh, features of the environment? Uh, it's very difficult in uh, real life 
to separate out these two things. So they normally go together. So uh, a shoal with more fish has more fishy stuff in it. Um, uh, so it, it could be choosing on the basis of fishy stuff. Um, and I, I think the, the short answer here is that in real life, uh, the animal will choose whatever is the most efficient way of deciding which is more. Um, so it won't necessarily choose the the shoal with the, the most fish, but it will choose the shoal with the most fishiness about it, if you will, uh, particularly if, if there are fish of different sizes. And they're, remember, they're all swimming around, so it's actually difficult to count anyway. Yeah. Yeah. In the lab, you can control this. You can control the size of the fish, how much they swim around, and so on. And you can show that uh, under laboratory circumstances, the fish do indeed respond to numerosity. So you can get rid of the, the other cues that it might be attending to, like uh, the amount of fishiness, or which is uh, be a combination of the actual area, visual area covered by the fish, as it swims around, the fishes as they swim around. Uh, so you, you can do it in the lab. It's harder to do it in, in real life. I mean, there are examples where you can do it in real life. So, for example, in these wonderful experiments by Karen McCoon with lions, uh, she used um, a playback technique. So she could tell how many intruders there were meant to be to a, a lion, a pride's territory, because she would place say, uh, three loudspeakers at the edge of the uh, the pride's territory. And so it seemed as though there were three lions going to attack the pride and its territory. Um, and then uh, you could tell whether the defending lions would attack the apparent intruders, would approach the loudspeakers, or whether they would retreat. And this depended upon the calculation that the defending lines made about how many of themselves there were and how many of the intruders there seemed to be. And this, by the way, is also quite abstract because what they're doing is they're hearing intruders mm -hmm. and they're seeing themselves. Uh, so they're making a comparison across modalities, uh, the number of uh, raw roarers and the number of... Um, uh, and the number of themselves, which they probably assess by vision. Uh, so, yeah, you can tell they're counting them into those circumstances. You know, there's there's a lot of um, discussion about the need for ecological validity in testing of animals' cognition, whatever the cognitive abilities are. Um, and in a sense... Um, uh, in a sense, you know, with these tests, you might not be necessarily addressing uh, the fish, the fishes or the lions or whatever organisms, their, their umwelt, right? Their normal, ecologically valid uh, perceptual perception and, and interaction with the world. On the other hand, uh, I don't know how much mathematical ability is innate in humans, right? Because without any education, none of us would go very far uh, generally in a, in a mathematical sense. So in, in some sense, you know, studying our mathematical abilities is studying the what we have, our potential, right, for cognition, which is an interesting question still. Is that how you view, like, when you're testing fish numerical abilities, 
not necessarily what they are doing or what they normally do, but their potential, what they can do? Uh, yeah, basically, you're, you're saying, can they count? Um, well, do so they count? It, well, it goes back to the question of when when might they count versus when might they use other cues? And, you know, so so we're like pushing their counting ability, essentially, right? Yeah. Um, so you, you can look at things like um, uh, whether they're using uh, density of... Mm-hmm. Uh, of of the, of two shoals, or whether they're using numerosity, and uh, you know if if they've got density and numerosity, they'll use them both because um, it's sensible. Um, you know, if you've got uh, lots of fish, they're going to, and they're in a small area, they're going to look denser. So you'll use that as a cue. Um, you can also manipulate it so that you can take the same number of fish and um, make them more or less dense by changing the way in which the tank is arranged. And you know, under those circumstances, when you have the same numerosity but uh, a denser group, they'll go for the denser group. I mean, they might well have gone for the more spread out group. They might think the more spread out group is um, is more, but actually they go for the denser group, in, at least in some studies. Um, so, you know, the in, in real life or ecologically valid situations, I mean, they'll use what they can. And it's interesting to note that two of the leading uh, experimenters in this area, um, Otto Kerler, who operated mostly before the Second World War and pioneered many of the methods we still use, he thought that um, animals didn't count in mm-hmm. the wild but could learn to count in the lab. So they had this capacity, which for some reason that I don't fully understand, he thought they didn't use in the wild. <laughs> um, uh, a more recent uh, student, uh, uh, Hank Davis, um, a Canadian uh, scientist, he thought, well, they, they, they can use uh, accounting in the wild, but only as a last resort when things like density and right. uh, area... Uh, moving around um, can't be used to make that judgment um, on the other hand in the lab um, Elizabeth Brannan uh, showed that actually animals use given a choice between um, area density and number animals like to use number more than they like to use these other cues mm. but that's an experiment in the lab but it seems to me that, you know, what you do in the lab um, seems applicable elsewhere. So, for example, in the lab, you find that most animals will go for more food rather than less food. Um, well, you know, in the wild, <laughs> given the choice, they'll go for more food rather right. than less food. And you can do proper experiments in, with free-ranging monkeys, for example, um, about whether free-ranging monkeys will go for more pieces of apple than fewer pieces of apple and surprise surprise yes they do go for more pieces of apple interesting uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah these are free ranging monkeys not mon- monkeys in the lab you have to you wait for them to come up to you know your testing area and then you show them bits of apple or fruit or whatever going into one bucket and rather fewer into another bucket and stand back and see which one they go for mm-hmm. well you will not be surprised to know they go for uh, more pieces of apple or whatever fruit seems most attractive to them at the time. 
stepping back to the brain for a moment. So your oh. your fr- your friend Randy Gallistel um, has this uh, idea that numbers are symbols and they must be uh, stored in- internally within the cell in something more stable like RNA. Um, first of all, I, I want to ask what you think of of those ideas because I know that you and he have had many discussions. But then, well, I'll ask you that first, and then we'll move on to like different mechanisms in the brain. Um. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I mean, the, uh, Randy has some quite good evidence. Um, yeah. About this, I mean, it's not. I mean, he has some. He has some evidence. And he has some very, very good theoretical arguments about why it has to be something like that within the cell. Now, again, this is this is a, a topic that is uh, a bit above my pay scale, and mm-hmm. I'm not really competent to to make a, a, an evaluation on that. But I don't see why it shouldn't be true when you have uh, other ways of trying to represent numerosities for example, in neural networks, mm-hmm. it doesn't really work terribly well. I mean, we've done some of this stuff ourselves, and it really, it only really works if you kind of set up your neural network with, if you like, some um, innate properties. And I did this uh, many years ago with uh, uh, was then the student, Marco Torti, now, of course, an immensely distinguished professor, running one of the best labs in Italy on the numerical cognition. Um, and I don't think he really believes this anymore. But um, what, what we did is we, we, we tried to set up these neural networks, uh, ones which uh, simply learned to distinguish different numerosities and others where you kind of built in a bit of innate structure, not actual mm-hmm. numbers, but innate structure. The ones with the R, R innate structures seem to work much better they they model the human, human various types of human behavior better. So I I like now whether this is within a cell or whether it's um, you know the connections between neurons. I don't know. Um, I mean I, I think you know time will tell. And there's no reason why it shouldn't be both. There's no reason why you shouldn't have numbers within cells and some other kind of numerical representations uh, in in the the strength of the connections between cells. I don't see yeah. these are are exclusive, yes. Uh, so that that would be my. I think that would be my position. You can have, you can have both, but it's not really been that well modelled so far. I would say um, in neural networks, you mean, or in, a, in neural in neural networks? Yeah. I know. I mean, I've I've had arguments with some of you know the great theorists of this, like Jeff Hinton, uh-huh. um, who thinks it can all be done in neural networks. And uh, and Randy, who thinks you actually have to do it Otherwise. themselves. Otherwise, uh, yeah. Well, uh, you know, but then you have to get the stuff out of the cell and do calculations with it. Right. So, right. Uh, so uh, I, I I think um, maybe invite me back in five years' time, and maybe oh, okay. Be... <laughs> <laughs> One year maybe for the zebrafish <laughs> results, five for the yeah, um, but... yeah, for the theory. Theories are always <laughs> more difficult. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but the, but you describe in the book too. I mean, there are individual neurons that have activity correlating with a certain numerosity, for instance. Uh, and then there, you know, there are obviously these accumulator type neurons as well. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but uh, you know, part of the thing with neurons, whether it's neural networks or individual neurons, 
is stochasticity, right? They're uh, somewhat random. And in cases when, let's say, in a fish trying to count uh, the numbers in a shoal, you need to be pretty precise. So how do we reconcile the stochastic nature of neural networks? And let's say, you know, just thinking of uh, the individual neurons that respond to the number five or something, right? The, the numeral five. Um, then we ha- also have a grandmother cell problem where if we kill that neuron, the organism would would, would not then be able to um, represent five unless it trained up another neuron through the accumulator. Uh, so how do we how do we recogni- uh, reconcile the stochastic nature and then that grandmother cell like problem with uh, the precision needed? Uh, right. Well, I think there's there's a, a prior question here, which is that we have the kind of the the neurosity cells that, for example, uh, Nida has identified in, in monkey and bird uh, brains. Um, so, what is it about those cells that makes them respond preferentially to fiveness? He doesn't say. Mm. Maybe we don't know yet. Uh, mm. So it might it might be some. Uh, Galistellian uh, thing right. going on within right. the cell, which <laughs> makes them particularly, <laughs> yeah. which makes them particularly responsive to fibers. Um, and um, and the, the the question is, and I I think that in some of the stuff that that some of the uh, papers that need is published, there aren't there isn't just one uh, five ness cell. There are quite a lot of fibers cells, so it's not quite the grandmother cell problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, a cell's fairly cheap, so there's no reason why you can't have kind of lots of five of cells. And then they have to be connected up in some way so that, you know, um, so, I mean, there, there are complicated modeling problems here. Yeah. Um, so that's, I think, I think that, that's, uh, that's one issue. The other, the other issue you say about the stochastic nature. Well, you know, it's been known for a long time that, uh, um, that with uh, say accumulator type uh, neurons or accumulator type mechanisms of any sort, you get scalar variability. That is, the amount of variance goes up with magnitude. Um, and I mean, as long as you know that, because the brain knows that, it can take into account the amount of variability uh, that um, that might be going on and. Uh, there is there is a bit of evidence that that, that some uh, some animals do in fact take account of um, the amount of, of, of variability that uh, mm. that some particular mechanism is is showing and making a, a judgment on the basis of well uh, you know we're, we're it's very likely to be five but you know it could be something else um, so I'm only going to commit so much resource to um, the the guess that it's five given the amount of Variability. And sometimes it looks as though there isn't very much variability, and so you know you're more confident in in the way in which you uh, you make that uh, you choose that action. So Brian, we we have just a couple minutes here left, and I have uh, as usual a thousand more questions to ask you. So I will mm-hmm. have to bring you back on in a year, and we can discuss more fish uh, in particular, and then uh, you know reach out when you have those results, or, or you're excited to talk about it. I but will. maybe I will. maybe two two final questions before we um, say goodbye. Mm-hmm. One, do we know of any organisms that cannot count? Because you, you describe a ton of organisms that can, whether they show evidence of being able to. Have we discovered any that can't? Well, uh, the question is, 
have we shown that they can't count or have we just failed to show that they right. can count? <laughs> so there's some very nice uh, experiments uh, by a colleague of mine, um, uh, Petrotini, uh, who, who worked, did some work with lizards. And um, so she found these lizards couldn't count. Then she couldn't did a different count. experiment and found that they, they could. So uh, you, you've got to, first of all, you've got to have a well-designed experiment. And then going back to your point about ecological validity, you know, it's, um, it depends on, you know, what the lizard actually likes. And, uh -huh. um, and you have to find both the, the kind of the rigorous experimental design and an understanding of lizard psychology. Um, so you need to be a lizard expert as well. So if you, if you, it, oh, so just going back to the point, if you fail to find evidence of counting, it may be you've done the wrong experiment. Uh, on the other hand, maybe they can't count. Hmm. So, but but we have no definitive organisms yet. How, how about bacteria? Ah, uh, yeah. Well, um, <laughs> well, there are. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I don't. I personally don't think bacteria can count. But um, I mean, there, there there are bacteria that will light up if there's enough of them together. Right. Yeah. You describe that um, in the book as well. Yeah. I describe yeah. that in the book. But there have to be millions of them, and I doubt that a single cell organism can count to a million. Um, so I yeah. could be wrong about that, but uh, I would. They may be surprised. using some other signal besides besides counting. They could be. They could be. Yeah. I lied. I have one more question for you. Are numbers real? <laughs> okay. What's the ontological status of uh, mathematical entities? Uh, right. Um, yeah. Okay, you, you, you leave the easiest to last. I yeah, that's see. the simplest um, one. <laughs> I know. Um, so this is what uh, Galisol calls um, going down the rabbit hole. Um, so uh, I think you have to go down the rabbit hole. Well, um, uh, my, my view is a kind of rather simple-minded view. Um, I mean, I know I know about the history of, uh, of uh, Foundation of Mathematics. I, I worked on that for a while, um, but but my view is that numbers are, of course, uh, abstract. Uh, that abstract objects can have no causal properties. Um, of course, they're abstract. Uh, they're not in the world. They're abstract. Um, but we experience instances of these abstract uh, concepts, and uh, these instances do have causal properties in the world. And um, so we can generalize or abstract from instances of these uh, um, these instances in order to get a, a an abstract conception of numbers. So you know, I'm not I'm not a Platonist in that sense. Um, I mean, there's a, a, a one of my colleagues, uh, Marcus Jaquinto, is a philosopher at University College London, who takes who takes this kind of view, I'm sure he would say that my presentation of it is is grossly unsophisticated, but um, it seems to me to make sense. Um, and there are lots and lots of things that where, which are abstract that um, we only know through their instances. Even letters, you know, there are lots of mm -hmm. different fonts for the letter A. Um, you've got handwriting uh, for A. Um, so A as a concept, uh, the letter A as a concept, is actually rather abstract. And what we know yeah. about it are instances of it. 
And the same is true for lots of things like words. You can hear words in a high voice or low voice. Your voice, my voice, and some other person's voice. But they're all, they all are instances of, if you like, of the abstract uh, uh, word itself. Uh, or, or music, you know. You can hear, you know, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony played on a kazoo, but it's still Beethoven's, it's still the tune, isn't it? The tune's abstract. So anyway, I don't think it's a mystery that um, we have and have knowledge of lots of abstract concepts, mm. and numbers are just one of them. All right, Brian. Well, what's actually real is I have to go uh, see the year-end school play, which is, I, I suppose, not real. It's a real play, but not about real anyway. Now I'm getting just confused, but I enjoyed learning about uh, the counting and numerical abilities uh, of many of the animals that you describe, um, most of which we didn't even get to during our discussion, but, um, no, but enjoyed talking with you. Thanks for being with me. Well, thank you for inviting me. Brain Inspired is a production of me and you. I don't do advertisements. You can support the show through Patreon for a trifling amount and get access to the full versions of all the episodes, plus bonus episodes that focus more on the cultural side but still have science. Go to braininspired.co and find the red Patreon button there. To get in touch with me, email paul at braininspired.co. The music you hear is by The New Year. Find them at thenewyear.net. Thank you for your support. See you next time. The stare.